0: Happy early Valentine's Day to you all. I know, every man in the room just panicked. What? Is it today? Same day every year. <laughs> There's a bit of a Valentine's theme uh, to the message this morning. Though so I won't be talking about romantic love per se. I mean, we may hint on it. Kind of fun to talk about a little embarrassing. I like seeing everyone's faces turn red, you know, from this vantage point, seeing hundreds of people just, why is he talking about this? It's great fun for me. But really, uh, to make a point uh, with where we're going in Acts chapter 21 together, um, you think back to the early days of your love. Not all of you are old enough to think way, way back, but most of us have experienced those early feelings of newly kindled love, and think about what fools we make of ourselves, the silly things that we say or do, and you only need to see just a, a, a gazillion uh, romantic movies or something to see that one boy that's down in the lawn, right, with the boombox on his shoulder to, you know, serenade the girl from the window and everything, and, you know, catch up with that guy 20 years later, is he doing that? Not really, Right. There's something about that youthful energy and sort of, hey, all bets are off and I don't care about my reputation. I don't care if her father's going to look out the window and see me doing this and flip the lights on and chase me out of the yard or anything. It's worth it. The danger is worth it to get the girl. There's a foolishness about love and a recklessness about love that we grow out of. Or we become a little too familiar with the object of our affection so that those risks kind of die down and we don't uh, stick our necks out quite as much as we used to or make the big grand gestures. Maybe we feel a sense of security that lulls us into a, a numbness that we don't have to do those things anymore because I already got the girl or I got the boy. Is Lori Brown here by any chance? Eric and Lori, they minister in a lot of churches on Sundays, and so it's not always a guarantee they'll be here, but they're a part of our congregation. You've heard Eric Brown, you know, preach up here before. I wanted to really say this in front of Lori Brown because she was a classmate of mine in high school. We went to a Calvary Christian Academy in Turner, Maine, and she was a whiz, smart as a whip, valedictorian in her sleep kind of student and, and, and always like steady, even keel, nice, predictable, just, you know, just salt of the earth kind of girl. And she was a classmate of mine. And I remember, um, in my church in Auburn, I kept running into this girl that I would only see once a year that I knew was her cousin. And this girl that I came to find out was Chrissy Ouellette would come in and visit from Florida to hang out with her cousins. And I was like, I said to this classmate of mine, Lori, who's not here to fight me over this, she doesn't remember saying this. I said to her, I said, I'm going to date your cousin. She goes, no, you're not. She's already got a boyfriend. She's all set. She doesn't need you. So she said to me, because we'd tease each other like this, I'm going to to date her. I wish she was here just so I could continue to rub it in that I married the girl (laughs) that I said I would one day date. And I don't care how smart Lori thinks she is, she hasn't got it all figured out. <laughs> anyway. Uh, that's just one of my great victories in life, so I like to reminisce on it from time to time. That's because I still haven't gotten a Valentine's gift, so I'm hoping this scores a little points here, you know. Where does our craziness go? Where does our energy towards showing all the love we can muster go when we have that special person in our life? And I admit, this is not really a Valentine's message. It would be the strangest one. Because we're going to talk about the Apostle Paul, and nothing about the Apostle Paul screams romantic love. Uh, But he has a burning passion for the bride of Christ. And Paul is relentless in his pursuit for the mission of Jesus Christ. And as we look at how he conducts himself, I can't help but seeing that young romantic, that one who's willing to stick his neck out and kind of go for it all. And I don't care who sees it, who knows. I don't care what risk there is to my safety or my reputation or anything. I'm willing to stick myself, uh, stick my neck out there for the cause of Christ. So I thought it would be important to have that bit of a romantic angle as we're approaching Valentine's Day. But we're going to take our passage section by section. It's typically our custom to have someone come up and read the Bible for us, the passage that we'll be studying together. But we have a tendency to not do that on Communion Sundays because of all that's going on. But in case you were wondering why we do that, not only does it include many of you in the body of Christ in the worship of God formally, But it also highlights the Word of God, gives it its own space, because that is the authority over our lives, it's the authority over our church. So it keeps us anchored to not go in places that the Holy Spirit does not intend for our church to go, because we want to give prominence to the Word of God. So if you're ever wondering why we do that, it is, yes, for the engagement of many people and for us to get to know them, but it's more importantly for the holding high of the Word of God, and so we look forward to that each and every week. Let me make this first point, and then we will dive into our text here in just a minute. And the first is that love will make you do foolish things. That's what we've been saying. And Paul was no stranger to foolish love. He had said all along that we should expect foolishness in our lives as followers of Christ. That this idea of thinking we could get away from being a little bit idiotic, or a little bit ridiculed, should be removed from us if we are really going to pursue this Jesus, this is what he told the Corinthian believers who were full of themselves. They were a church that was going through all kinds of turmoil because they were reputationally thinking they were too cool for school. They were thinking, hey, we're, we're chill about some of these things. We're not coming down hard on some of these sins over here because we get it. They're all like us, you know, and so they were just relating to the world. And all of a sudden, the world had just crept into their church and started wreaking havoc On all those things. So Paul is addressing that and he says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul wants us to have a fundamental awareness as we are pursuing the cross of Christ that we've been singing about, praying towards, remembering in our communion table. There's a fundamental awareness that we are the underdogs in this moment, that by all appearances, we are here to fail. We are not the cool kids. And in fact, I believe that we find greater peace when the Lord adjusts our expectations, sets our expectations before we even start heading out to pursue Him. And so this reminder of Paul's, this calling of Paul's, is helpful for us to understand that love and the love that we have towards Christ and all things that bring Him glory are going to lead us down some seemingly foolish paths. And there are sacrifices involved. So let's get into our text in Acts chapter 21. We come in in verse 17. I'm going to read a large chunk of it here and then we'll take a break and we'll come back and finish it up. It says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. This us and we is Luke writing this account about his travels with Paul and that whole entourage that was journeying with him, going and visiting the churches. And they had finally come to Jerusalem where Paul had set his aim. I am getting back to Jerusalem to deliver the love offering and to um, build the bond between the Gentiles and the Jews in Jerusalem. And so they were received gladly. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one, this is Paul speaking now, the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He's giving a praise report, not a Paul report, but a praise report about what God had done in and through him and, the minute, and those that ministered with him. Verse 20, when they heard it, they, all the recipients, the, the church leaders in Jerusalem, it's important that we recognize this, when they heard it, they glorified God. They wanted to see the gospel spread into the Gentiles. They wanted to see many come to Christ. So everything that happens from this point on, do not forget that aspect, that this is what they really wanted. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. This is what was happening in Jerusalem is thousands were coming to Christ. They're all zealous for the law. Paul has a lot to say about the law and there's a lot that he's going to have to contend and wrestle with based on just that one phrase alone. So they're saying we've got a lot of followers of Christ, we've got thousands and we've got elders in place and all these things, but you have to remember these are all Jews that were saved from the law but are still zealous or affectionate towards the law. Verse 21, and they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses or forsake the law, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. So we got a problem here, they're saying. So what are we going to do about this? What's to be done? They'll certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. This is a request, not a command. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expense so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the gentiles who have believed, we've seen a letter with our judge, they, uh, I'm sorry, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You may remember this. This was earlier in Acts. We saw them form that letter and say, what are we going to ask of the Gentiles who do not know Jewish customs and they don't want to offend their Jewish brothers and sisters by just saying, oh, the law doesn't matter. What are some of the bare minimum requirements that we can see that God expects from all of us? And how can we have an agreement amongst Gentile believers? Can you at least see this in our customs, that this is good and right and still honors the Lord? So the Gentiles agreed to that. And so these uh, several things that are listed here were things that the Gentiles said, okay, we will use this as bridge builders and, and as a personal holiness before the Lord. Verse 26, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So what did we just hear? The brothers received them gladly. James is, excuse me, James, one of the leaders, the elders, is the half-brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James that we see later in the New Testament. This is a man of wisdom, a man of prayer. He was nicknamed camel knees because he was always kneeling, praying before the Lord. James was a wise and humble and pious man, a follower of Christ. So when he says, Paul, listen, we've got a reputational problem here that's building. And we don't want people to think that you're against the law. What do we do about this? He's not coming at it from strictly a pragmatic standpoint that hasn't consulted with the voice of the Holy Spirit. and there's leadership present. We don't know exactly, but in the Jewish system, the Sanhedrin, which we've heard their names quite a bit, especially as we were studying John, there were 70 leaders that sat on the Sanhedrin, and and some have speculated and seen that as the church was growing in Jerusalem, they were able to match that number of elders over the church that was in Jerusalem. And yet they were glorifying God. They were appreciating and praising the Lord for all that he was doing amongst the Gentiles. They weren't having a problem with Gentiles coming into the fold per se. But yet they have this strange request. We've got a lot of people in our fellowship. There's some misunderstanding. Paul, we know you're a good guy. We know what you stand for. But they don't know all these things. A lot of time has passed. They're not as familiar with you. And they're hearing that you don't like the law anymore, that you can't stand the law, and you're telling them, don't do any of this Jewish custom stuff anymore. But the rumors are false. They allude to that. They said, we want you to do this and this and this, so that they'll know that there's nothing to these rumors. Paul is under this speculation. He's under this rumor mill. Even though all of his practice has been very careful not to destroy or denigrate the heritage of which he was saved out of. He never told people to stop circus circumcising your children. He even said to his young apprentice, Timothy, It would be better for you to do so because of the people that you'll be ministering to will see that you relate to them through their customs. Paul did the exact opposite of what he was being accused of, his rumors. He honored the law. But he had a different take on it, right? He had an awakening to the fact that the law does not lead us to salvation. I I should say that wrong. The law does not provide salvation. It only leads us to it. This is how he says it in Galatians 3. He says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. It doesn't get us right before God to be under the law because we can't do it perfectly. There's no way we can do this well. For the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul had an awakening through the Holy Spirit to say, look, the law is only sufficient up to the point of making you realize that you're a sinner greatly in need of salvation. So Paul comes to that realization, hits his knees, receives Christ as his Lord and Savior and changes his ways and starts preaching a message that says, the law is only sufficient to a certain point. Do not dedicate your entire life to its keeping. Especially if you're going to avoid faith in Christ. But when you're entrenched in your customs and your heritage and is your identity and all these things that you're so familiar with, it's so hard to let those things go. And you can have Jesus plus all those things and you start thinking, man... And, and what do we do as people? Our identity in human things becomes more important in this, than the spiritual world, the things that we can't always see, or the, the future and the, and the hope that we take by faith. And so, as it always happens, that the club mentality starts to win out over this unity in Christ, It matters more to me by my preferences, what you do to look like me, to act like me, to behave like me, to do the things that I like, rather than the things that are truly from God. And so they have a suggestion. They say, we have four men who are under a Nazarite vow. That's what is being alluded to here. And so what we're asking you to do is, Paul, as you have just returned from the Gentiles, which would make you ceremonially unclean in the temple until you've given seven days and then you have your purification ritual and then you're able to enter the temple, we're asking you to do a couple of things here. The Nazarites go under a vow for 30 days. They're not allowed to let any razor touch their head. They stay away from anything that comes from the vine and they they purify themselves that way and, and it's expensive because they have to yeah, I don't know have anybody gotten a haircut. I'm sorry, Elijah, I have to say this. Anybody gotten a haircut lately? It's not the cheapest thing in the world, but he does a really great job. So it's worth every penny. So I guess anyway. Um, so Paul is like thinking, okay, there's one, two, three, four guys that all need a haircut and everything. They're asking me to pay for it to show my solidarity, my support of the ritual. And then at the same time, Paul, since you've been amongst the Gentiles, I just want you to think about now Paul has made brothers and sisters amongst the Gentiles. And he's having to, if he's going to accommodate this request, he's, he's having to go through a ritual that basically acknowledges they weren't clean enough for me to hang out with my Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul has developed a heart for them, he's seen the Lord grow them, all these how do you think his personal offense to that request hits home? Now it's 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 something that God wanted done before Christ came and paid for it all. So it's not like the custom itself is out of left field, it's just that it doesn't do what they thought it did. And it's been all fulfilled now in Christ, and they're saying, But we still want you to do it anyway. What would culture demand of us right now? What would what would culture say to us if we had similar opportunities or our actions were as far as we could tell as we look back in our rear view mirror, I think I did everything right. I think I did everything sensitively, I think I, I, I dealt with the substance of the issue and not just the window dressing, all the things that Paul did. I think I showed love to the individual, I think I showed Christ's forgiveness and favor to all. And now I have to kind of act like I messed up along the way or maybe I didn't really mean it. There's a lot that, that kind of attacks the flesh in this, right? Especially when we've done a good job. We feel like, I should, I'm justified in this. I, I'm right. Paul could have blamed this on weak-minded people. He could have made this a point, as Paul has done in other places, he's not afraid to do this, but if he's got to stand up to something, he could have stood up to it now and said, this is, uh, you know, this isn't what Christ died for, and you're giving into all these customs, but this was a different kind of moment, this was a coming back to Jerusalem that he had his eyes set on, because he wanted to see the unity between Jew and Gentile brought together, so he brought a boatload of cash with them that the churches had raised for them because the Jews in particular were taking a beating, literal beating for their faith in Christ. So all of these thousands who are still a little bit clingy to their customs were still sincere for Jesus Christ and Paul loved them too. So as his heart was for them, it was less about Paul's track record and his sense of self-justification. He said he kind of looked at it as, well, it's a little bit of an awkward time right now. I'm going to do my part and see how we can make this work. I sense that's where the request comes from James as well. We've said he's a man of prayer and wisdom and of faith. I'm spending some time on this because I did a lot of reading on this this week, and I saw a lot of people kind of pick on Paul's decision to, you're going to see it in the text, he's going to move forward and be like, roll up sleeves, what can we do? How can we make this happen? And um, it, it's looked at like like he made the, the the wrong choice and and that kind of thing. And I just don't quite see it that way when you see the bigger picture that we've been studying for weeks and weeks. Why didn't Paul stand his ground? Why didn't he justify himself? Why didn't he say you're all wrong in this and I've been the right one? We will take you back to his mindset again to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians, we jump now ahead to chapter 9, and he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I may win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Parentheses, he says, though not being myself under the law, I just... Went along with the customs, but I know that the law wasn't saving me, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, I was able to ditch the customs of those, but I didn't abandon what Jesus said was right, pure and holy, that I might win those outside the law. Paul's motivation is coming from a deeper place than what we would typically be triggered to want to react if we were being called on the carpet. If we were being asked to yet give of yourself even more after you've given almost everything of yourself. I came across this story this week and I thought this might help us see where Paul's inspiration or his motivation comes from. When Lou Little was a football coach at Georgetown University... He had on his squad a player of average ability who rarely got into the game. But Coach Little was fond of him. He especially liked the way he walked arm in arm with his father on campus. One day, shortly before a big game with Fordham, the boy's mother called with the news that his father had died that morning of a heart attack. The student went home with a heavy heart but was back three days later. Coach, he pleaded, will you start me in the game against Fordham? I think that is what my father would have liked the most. After a moment's hesitation, Little said, okay, but only for a play or two. True to his word, he put the boy in, but he never took him out. For 60 action-packed minutes, that inspired young man ran and blocked like an All-American. After the game, the coach praised him, son, you've never played like that before. What got into you? Remember how my father and I used to go arm in arm, answered the boy. Well, he he was totally blind, and today was the first time he ever saw me play. His desire was to please someone he loved, someone not visibly present, made all the difference. I'm telling you, until we see that Jesus has left us a legacy of this kind of sacrificial love until you and I see that his observation of all of our actions and our self-justifications and everything, his observation matters more than anything else. We will be tempted and probably guilty of doing what Paul didn't do, which is stand up for yourself. You don't take anybody's, you know, what And we're going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure you're aware of all the things I've done. And yet you're still asking more of me. It doesn't seem like Paul was even tempted in the least to behave that way. It's a very foolish kind of love. Don't you think? The one that was seeing Paul's actions, the one that nobody else could see is the one who foolishly traded the splendor and honor of heaven for the cold and painful rejection of earth. Paul was motivated by his Savior's approval. He wanted everything I do right now, someone might say, why would you do that? And it allowed him to say, because Jesus did that for me and he did it for you. Love will do some pretty foolish things, but it will also lead you into some pretty dangerous places. This is a strategic play of the elders in Paul and we're going to see how it played out for him? What's the riskiest thing you've ever done for love? Don't answer out loud. I don't want to know. (laughs) But I want you to think about it. What's the greatest risk you ever took for someone that you love? Don't we see this kind of missing in today's climate of love, what we call love? There isn't a lot of risk anymore. We've got compatibility algorithms that help us find the right match. Who is that looking out for? Me. Christ demonstrated a love that was sacrificial of giving to the other. And yet, culturally speaking, we are meant to or we are encouraged to go find the person that builds you up, protects you and takes care of you more than anybody else. We try out relationships before fully committing to them, don't we? We see it in our culture has diminished the role of marriage. You know, one of the very simple, most basic aspects of marriage that, that works is the commitment of it. We say, well, yeah, people can get out of it and everything. Yeah, but not cheaply. Still costs you something to get out of it. Anybody that's had to get out of it or has gotten out of it, it will say it's not real fun, doesn't tickle. And so when we get into these kind of commitments because we put skin in the game, we put our name on the list and we said, now I'm committed, all of a sudden it kind of forces us to show up a little bit. This is the aspect that is missing so much from what we hear about the modern definition of love. But real love is willing to sacrifice life and limb and livelihood for the object of affection. And again, this is what we see Paul willing to suffer. He is suffering both a danger to his reputation and a danger to his body. But let's look at the reputation piece here real quick. I'm thinking of this little scene in the movie Elf. Which I didn't get to watch this Christmas season, so I'm feeling a little starved of it, so I just want to share. Do you, can you picture the scene where he comes into a boardroom and he's got a top coat, top coat, and a hat, a scarf, and everything, he comes in to announce, I'm in love, and I'm, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it! And everyone's just quietly looking at him, like there's 20 people going, you know, could you pick a better spot? I don't care who knows it. I'm, I'm, I'm enraptured in love. So I'm going to walk into any space blindly and just proclaim it from the rooftops. Paul had this, well, previously he had this perfectly manicured reputation. He was a zealot. He was. A phenomenal taskmaster. He was a man of great accomplishment and education. We've seen his resume before. Anything you would want in that space and time in terms of education and pedigree and accomplishment, he had it all. Paul's reputation was perfectly manicured only to come to the end of his life and have it completely trashed by people who have no clue what he's trying to accomplish. And they won't hear reason, they won't take all of his pedigree, all of his accomplishments into account to say, well, let the poor man speak. They don't care. They, they see blood, and they they will not put up with any of it. Let's get into the text again in verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, so he had done what was asked. He had done what was recommended. And still, they stirred up the whole crowd And laid hands on him. Now let's be clear. This isn't the group of Christians that James was speaking to. Hey, let's bring them together. It's not like they just defected and freaked out. But the culture still that's around and all those that were upholding the law. Or thinking, claiming they were upholding the law. They laid hands on him crying out, men of Israel help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. And these people are following Paul around everywhere too. Trying to stir up the churches and go back to the Jewish customs. They're going from location to location. They just won't let up. This monkey on his back. They even said, they said, moreover, even he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian with him in the city. And get this, and they supposed... We saw you in town with a Greek, so we knew you brought him into the restricted place of the temple. Well, how do you know that? Do you have that on CCTV footage or on the ring or anything like that? No, we just saw you buying apples together in the marketplace. Assumed you brought him into the temple where he wasn't allowed. There's this whole restriction, we went into this in Ephesians and somewhat in John, where uh, the, the Gentiles were encouraged to come into the courtyard of the temple, but there was a wall of partition, it was about four feet high, and it kept them from all the things that the Jews were allowed to enter into its customs. Which really, it was meant to keep them out, but it was also put down here, so it, would meant to create, it was meant to create a longing in them to want to participate in the things that God had allowed for His children. God was encouraging it for invitation. And instead, the temple used it as an opportunity to say, get out, keep out. A warning sign on there, I, I don't have it written, but there was a warning sign on there that says, if you've entered into this, if you've crossed this wall, uh, you have your own self to blame when we take your life. I mean, you think sometimes churches put up a sign saying, no coffee in the t- in the auditorium? You think that's harsh? They're like, no, no, if you step into this room right here, well, <laughs> We'll end you. So they said, we, we know Paul's guilty of this because he was hanging out with a Greek, you know, miles away. He must have brought him into that. Like Paul would do that to threaten the lives of his friends. Like he would just ignore those customs. But it was allowed to be um, touted and it was believed by those who were being worked up into a frenzy. So let's just take a pause from first century Christianity for a second. Let's think about 2024. I know that not necessarily we're all getting dragged out into the streets and getting, you know, our heads pummeled in and stuff by those of our critics and those who are accusing us of things. But do we not also face our own testings and things that we are, are feeling oppressed on in the workplace and in the classroom and the places where I know what my faith is calling me to do. I know what, what obedience to Christ should look like here. But it's going to be painful. It's going to be costly. Fortunately, into to their great credit, I could introduce you to so many people that are sitting in this room now who have faced those challenges and stepped up to the plate and asked the Holy Spirit to hold them together while they were panicked and their knees were knocking and yet still stood their ground for their faith with integrity, sincerity, and gentleness, not being obnoxious. They quietly trusted in the Lord and stepped into places of obedience that they knew were of great risk. To themselves, to their careers, to their livelihoods, to their health. It's incredible. It does happen, and the Lord still moves us to be obedient in that regard. I might have us look at it like this, that sometimes actions that make the least sense on paper make the greatest impact on eternity. Again, we have an eternal vision, not just what hurts in the immediate. Because there is significant danger to the body. This is what Paul experienced, life, limb, livelihood. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, real generous, graceful crowd, word came to the tribune of of the cohort that all jerusalem was in confusion so he reacting a roman soldier one who's in charge of things is like i got to bring order to this so he took at once uh soldiers and centurions he's coming with the hundreds to break the crowd up and he ran down to them and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers they were like "Ah, what beating uh paul get, get up get up paul you're okay and, and while he's staggering to his feet, pummeled and, and bleeding, no doubt taking this his uh, his abuse from this crowd, he is in it is he is intervened for by again a Roman authority. Remember how we were talking about just several passages ago how process and good business meeting practices came and broke up the the freaking out of the crowd. And again, the Lord is just using process here. He's using the. Um, the collective self-interest of those who are in charge and are like, we can't let this get out of control. But in the, spite, in the middle of all of this is a suffering servant of Christ. Here's what you and I need to understand is that serving Christ will cost you something in this life. The, the whole reward and comfort and, and, and security and all the peace and all the wiping the tears from our eyes, that is for the life to come. The life that we live now is a life of cost and sacrifice. And coming to Jesus, if anybody's ever told you, come to my church, because once you have Jesus, all your problems go away. I apologize for you. I'm sorry that you found out that that was not true. Because it isn't. Somebody said, you can't discover new oceans unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. The shore that we are constantly losing sight of is a one of, of temporary security, comfort, and peace in this life and letting it go for the adventure, the adventure that Christ has for us to come because the anchor of our faith is a future security, not a present comfort. What holds us together now and for every day forward is what is to come, not because today is promised to us to be great and peachy, and we can look at the practicality of Paul's actions and say, why did he do this? It didn't work. He got a beat down. He went through all the, the criticism of his actions, the heartbreak of not being recommended, or, or at least uh, relied on for his entire track record. Still asked to do more, to pay more. Again, enough of the haircut dig, right, Elijah. But to pay more for it and invest in all of this, he was, he was asked to do, he does it all and gets a beating anyway. Practically speaking, humanly speaking, we would have to conclude bad calculation. And don't most of us think that way. We look in review of the way it turned out and say, I must have made the wrong decision. That isn't always the case, is it? Sometimes the things that have the greatest impact on eternity make the least practical sense on paper now. Don't use that to justify all kinds of bad behavior because remember Paul said that even while I was living like those outside the law, I was always surrendered and submitted to the law of Christ. The calling that we're talking about here is as obedience calls us into deeper places of bringing glory to the Lord. They are riskier, they are more painful, they are scarier. This is a dangerous mission. We'd be foolish to think otherwise. So what happens in verse 33? Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. This is actually a good thing because it gets him out of the angry crowd. He inquired who he was and what had been done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried away by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying away with him. Who does this sound like? What circumstance does this sound exactly like, right? Jesus is getting dragged out by all the false accusations and all the anger and the, the seething rage of the people saying, just get rid of him already, we're sick of his nuisance, Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the guy says back to him, wait, you know Greek? And then this weird little kind of thing that was on the headlines of the day comes in. Are you the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the um, assassins out into the wilderness? No, that wasn't me, Paul says. It's a funny inclusion here. It must have mattered more to the readers of the day. But Paul replied, no, I'm a, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And then when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew, saying, to be continued. Actually, we won't look at exactly what he said next time, because what he is going to say is what we already know, what we've already seen play out in Acts, what we've already seen the story play out, so we're going to skip what he actually says, but but suffice it to say this, is that Paul is addressing this Roman soldier in Greek to get access or permission to do the thing that the Spirit is pressing on him to do, which is to go and address his abusers. You know, some in reviewing this text have said, this has got to be a, a, a miscalculation of history. They must not have got this right because no fool in their right mind after receiving that beating would say, let me just go talk to them. There would be so much anger and there would be so much um, uh, self-justification there that they would be like, you know, I'm not guilty of this. And just putting up a fight Instead, Paul humbly, riskfully says, I'm not done here. They're, they need to hear something from me. Can I speak to them? And so in Greek, he appeals to the to the leader, to the man in authority. And then in Hebrew, he says to those who said, he doesn't care about us anymore or our customs. They said when they heard their own language coming back to them, they fell silent. <clears throat> Let me just make a simple observation and be done because of time. Paul spoke Greek to the Greeks and Hebrew to the Hebrews. Needs to address the crowds. He can't let rumors go. He has to say something to them because even if they take him and end his life now, there's a church that's going to continue on. And he doesn't want that church to have to live under this crowd, this cloud of rumor and speculation that isn't true. So he's like, I gotta say something and correct the record for one. But he doesn't want the church to fail. He doesn't want the rumors to stand. But he's going to use both languages to get the point of the gospel across, and this is why he's doing it, is because Jesus speaks our native language. Jesus speaks the language we recognize and say, I didn't know you could speak like me. I didn't know you spoke to the need of my heart. I didn't know that you understood my walk of life. I didn't know you understood my baggage and my, my fears and my frustrations and all these kinds of things. I didn't know you could relate to me like this. And yet, I hear my language coming back to me from your lips, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus speaks our language. He speaks to the scared follower, the one who's just sacrificing everything. I have no doubt thinking that Paul had very human fear going into these situations. He speaks the language of the dutiful soldier who's just doing what he sees in the procedure manual to do. He speaks the language of the angry mob to be able to get their attention, to help them understand that there is salvation in no other man but in the the man Jesus Christ. And so Paul is willing to risk his reputation and his body and even his life to get that message to their ears. And he's going to use every opportunity he can to do so, even as he stands before them bloodied and beaten up. And can I say this kindly, shamedly to myself even, as I look in the mirror of God's word, we have to host a class on how to do this. We have to teach us how to do this but something tells me if we just bought into the risk of this and we didn't care about our reputations we probably wouldn't have to be taught a whole lot about how to share our faith there's something greater at stake here than just the way our days go and the way our life plays out that the one who nobody else seems to recognize or see is looking down at us from the heavens has given us every advantage and empowerment and opportunity and he just calls us to imitate him and to live that kind of life of faithfulness willing to risk it all. So let's go back to this place of early love. Let's go back to this place of, I don't care who knows. I don't care what this costs me. I'll spend any amount. I'll go in any place to prove my love for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the champion of our hearts. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord, I just feel like this gets to places that are so hard for us to so hard for us to hear your grace when what we do is we pile in ourselves guilt for not loving you enough or fear speaks to us about how we can't risk some of the things that you're calling us to because it would hurt too much or it would be too much of an upsetting of our comfort zones and things, so Lord, just break through our humanness and let your spirit speak to each one of us in your grace and in your hope and in your wisdom, Lord. Give us that right next step. Give us that simple thing that just steps us into that territory of risking, uh, riskful obedience. Help us to learn to step away from those things that we hang on to too tightly. Loosen our grip, Lord and for those that are here Lord that have not surrendered their hearts to you God I just pray that in the quietness of this moment they would see that what you're calling them to is a life of risk and is a life of giving things up but it's in order to gain everything that they haven't found here on this earth so help us as your children to lead by example help us to detach ourselves from the things that own our hearts that are outside of you And help us to preach a gospel with our actions and our words that compels everyone to find their hope and peace in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.